Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Josh Carr Show. Today, we'll be talking about the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision. I'm talking about the overturning of Roe v. Wade and what has happened in this last year with the abortion argument. I'm also going to be talking about Russia and what is going on with the coup or the attempted coup that went on this weekend. But before we do that, I want to talk about the title sponsor for this podcast, Gulag America. One thing that I'm very passionate about is that we do not want America to turn into Russia, which is what we'll talk about today. That is why I've partnered with Gulag America. Gulag America can hook you up with high quality apparel that looks as good as it feels. Founded by an Army and Reserve veteran, Gulag America has t-shirts, long sleeves, and hoodies that are great for both men and women. My personal favorite is a shirt. Uh, it says, uh, my pronouns are a 9mm. Uh, and I'll be wearing a shirt next podcast so you guys can see. I'm always wearing my my polo shirt, so I know it's going to be quite the contrast. But uh, I have one question for everyone. Do you even know what a gulag is? Often the term gulag refers to literal prisons in Russia. But as I've discussed on this show, we have gulags taking over the West uh, all the time. Some of these, just to name a few, are the military industrial complex as well as the mainstream media for a limited time, if you use my code JoshCar10, that's one word, JoshCar10, you will get 10% off at Gulag America. Again, that's JoshCar10 at Gulag America. Great quality and great designs. Now, getting into Russia, speaking of Gulags, um, there was a coup attempt in Russia this weekend. And I use the term coup pretty lightly. It didn't get to the point where a lot of people were killed. Uh, it didn't get to the point where the Kremlin was openly attacked, but it was on the way to that. So I want to walk through the timeline for everyone so they can know kind of what happened. Most of this will be uh, according to The Guardian. If you want to go read it, uh, go check out The Guardian. They kind of gave a little bit of a timeline for what happened. Uh, and it was actually a really great article. That's what I'm going to be using as my source for today's podcast. So giving you a timeline Thursday, and I'm going to butcher these names. I apologize. I always do. I don't know Russian like at all. I don't understand Eastern European names and pronunciation, but we're going to go for it. So on Thursday, pre, it's Prigozhin, I believe. That's the pronunciation I'm going to use. Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner mercenaries, had basically an online rant talking about Shoigu. Now, if you don't know who Shoigu is, Shoigu is the military general uh, delegated by Putin in charge of Ukraine. Okay, obviously, there's been a lot of controversy with people uh, like we're not real sure how unified Russia is on the Ukraine war, especially with all the casualties they've lost. The Russian military is on a world scale pretty large, but a lot of their military is very outdated. And there's a lot of reporting going on that they're actually using. Uh, equipment from World War II, which is, you know, it's been almost 100 years. It's 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 old. Um, but Ukraine, on the other hand, is using NATO equipment, so it's very new. In any case, uh, Prigozhin tweet, I, I don't know if it was a tweet, but it, he was kind of, uh, he was um, talking just online about Shoigu and basically how he has duped Putin into this Ukraine war. In response to that, Shoigu and Putin basically dissolved the Wagner mercenary group. It was a state-sponsored mercenary group. Uh, and essentially, the way they dissolved it was by saying that they had to sign in to the military 
instead of just through the Wagner group uh, in order to be part of the Russian military. Essentially just saying, hey, your group's done. You can be part of the military, but that's it. So obviously this made Prigozhin very upset. Um, a missile was actually fired into a Wagner camp soon after. We don't know for sure where it came from, but there was a lot of speculation that this came from Putin. It killed, we think, around 15 men. We're not for sure, but Prigozhin came out and said that the losses were really heavy. Um, he then responded the next day by marching on a city called uh, Rostov-Undon. Uh, and he basically took it over. So this is a big deal at this point. I mean, you literally have a military general at war with the president of his company uh, of, his, of his country, excuse me. Uh, and that I mean, that's scary stuff for Russians. Um, Ukrainians, on the other hand, were really happy. We'll talk about that more in just a second. What's interesting about Prigozhin going into Rostov-Undon is that the people kind of welcomed him. Like you can see if you go to the Guardian article or you can look it up online, you can see pictures of people. Uh, there were tanks there. There were a lot of people and just, you know, a lot of military um, people in, in military garb. And it looks very serious, but the, the locals kind of come out. You can see a lot of selfies with people in tanks. No one was really concerned. Um, Prigozhin didn't meet any resistance in the city. And in fact, it, it went so far as the, the military officials in the area that were not part of the Wagner uh, group, they kind of, you know, welcomed Prigozhin there. And so he kind of just took over the city without having to fire a single shot. Um, other military officers, like I said, met with Prigozhin and accepted him and called for a resignation, a resignation of Shogu as well. So for those of you who uh, aren't as well versed in coups, uh, that is how a coup usually starts. Coups almost always are going to be a military coup. Uh, it starts with a high-ranking officer in the military that tends to get other military officers on his side, and they then try to assassinate uh, the sitting president or king or whatever uh, the executive is in that country. So up until this point, and I think we're at Saturday now, it, this looks like it's a full-blown coup. Like This is very much on its way to a lot of violence and a change in leadership in Russia. Um, Putin then went on TV and called it treason, which, uh, I mean, it is, you know, taking over a city in your own country is treason. And so Putin called it treason, basically denounced Prigozhin as a, a military officer and started to defend, uh, defend the Kremlin with his own military. So that's showing very clearly that Putin is feeling very threatened. Um, he literally started setting up blockades around the Kremlin. Uh, there was a lot of aircraft in the area uh, defending the Kremlin. And uh, this is when people started internationally started thinking, you know, this could lead to a lot of violence and a change in leadership potentially. Now, between the road to the Kremlin and Rostov-Undon, which is where Prigozhin is, there were about 15 more casualties, mostly because of bombings and artillery. So basically a convoy started from Rostov-on-Don towards the Kremlin. And most of the fighting was because of artillery. So it was a lot of bombings coming through. So there wasn't a lot of man-on-man -man contact, but about 15 of Prigozhin, Pr I'm messing up his name, Prigozhin's name, uh, his men were killed uh, as they started marching. Now, this is where it gets super interesting. Out of nowhere, 
So we've got military officer marching towards the Kremlin. Putin is sitting in the Kremlin defending it, hunkering down. At this point, everyone's thinking, wow, like we're going to have like a serious battle um, here. Out of nowhere, the president of Belarus said that a deal was made between Putin and Prigozhin, and Putin and Prigozhin then later came out and agreed to it publicly. They also agreed that there was a deal made. Now, this is super interesting because up to this point, we didn't know that the president of Belarus had anything to do with this. Uh, and so, and people are still figuring out what part does he play. But for those of you who don't know, Belarus is really, so they share a border with Russia. They share a border with Ukraine. And in fact, they are like really close to Kiev in Ukraine. So there's a lot of, um, they have a lot of pull or a lot of incentive, I guess, to be involved with the Ukraine-Russia war. And we don't know what happened with the president of Belarus and what he was able to broker. But there's a few things that I think are clear from this deal that I want to talk about. Um, the first is what are the new powers established, essentially? Because there was a deal made... Uh, we don't know who was on the up. We don't know if it was Putin or Prigozhin who was kind of more advantageous. And so it'd be reasonable to assume that the one who was more advantageous is going to walk out of this with more power. If I had to guess, it might be Prigozhin. I would not be surprised if Putin actually made a deal with Prigozhin and basically gave him some more power. Perhaps we'll see him be in charge of the Ukrainian war. I, I kind of doubt that because he's not a fan of the Ukrainian war. Perhaps uh, he'll be offered literally just a payout. Um, but if I had to guess, he is going to be switching roles in the executive and in the military in Russia. But this goes to, I guess that's my first theory. My second theory, which I believe is probably a little bit more accurate, is that between Prigozhin and Putin, there is basically a dead man walking at this point. One of them is going to be killed. I don't know how this deal was brokered. Perhaps the president of Belarus approached one and talked about how they could kind of make this problem go away quietly. And so we could see some sort of an international conflict where Belarus gets involved. But I'd be really surprised if both Putin and Prigozhin make it through the next year being alive. And between the two, I would have to guess that Prigozhin is going to, he's the one that's a dead man walking. I'd be really surprised if Putin has lost enough pull at this point that he, especially if the president of Belarus got involved, that leads me to believe that Putin and the president of Belarus were the ones talking, not Prigozhin and, um, and the president of Belarus. So I think it's safe to say my prediction is in the next year, we're going to hear that one of them has been killed. Obviously, if Putin is killed, that's going to be a huge deal. If Prigozhin is dead, uh, not as big of a deal. Um, and we could even see Shoigu get roped into that as well. That could be part of the deal. It, it seemed like originally Prigozhin's critiques were of Shoigu, not as much as uh, of Putin. So we may, may see that Shoigu is killed or at least uh, taken off uh, being a high-ranking military officer in Russia. One thing that's really interesting, it's important to keep in mind, uh, is that a lot of people were really excited about this. They were excited about the fact that Prigozhin might um, 
take over for Putin. Make no mistake, this guy is a super bad dude. Uh, killed a lot of people. He's just as much of a thug as Putin is. And power vacuums can be really dangerous when we're talking about a nuclear, uh, a nuclear country like Russia is. Russia has a ton of nukes. And although we don't like Putin, so far Putin has been in, in a leadership position for a long time and has not resorted to nukes. And so I think the media right now are really excited about the fact that there could be a power switch. I would really caution against people celebrating that. It could get much, much worse. At the very least, Putin talks to the United States presidents uh, and there is a level of understanding whereas Prigozhin may be even worse than Putin, which is saying a lot. The other thing that makes more sense, so I'm, I'm, I'm not okay with the media really celebrating it. I think that's irresponsible for them to do because just with our knowledge of coups in history, it's not going to get better for Russians, Ukrainians, or the world if there's a power vacuum there. The Ukrainians are obviously really hyped about this, and that I totally get. Of course, they're not going to want their enemy to be unified. And so that's definitely a silver lining for Ukraine. Uh, perhaps in that negotiation, Prigozhin uh, was able to somehow convince Putin to uh, weaken on Ukraine. And perhaps we'll see a close to that war come. But only time will tell. Now, going back to the media, everyone knows the media is biased. Everyone knows they're corrupt at this point. But unfortunately, they're still the ones on the ground. They're still the ones doing a lot of the reporting where we get this initial information. That's why I have partnered with Ground News. Now, if you haven't heard about Ground News yet, essentially it compiles all of the information, all of the news articles into one place, tells you a rating from left to right on their biases, tells you the owners of the company, things about that company so that you can understand why they may have covered that specific story. If you use my link down in the description below, you are going to get a special discount on Ground News. Um, it is like a dollar for subscriptions uh, at the lowest level, very affordable, but I use it on this show so that I can understand the biases in the media and do the best uh, commentary that I can do. Go check that out again, link in the description down below. Now, getting to Roe v. Wade. One year ago, just a few days ago, I believe on Saturday, was the one year anniversary of Roe v. Wade being overturned, which is the Dobbs decision. So if you hear me saying Dobbs, uh, just so everyone knows, when a Supreme Court decision is overturned, it is overturned using another case. So it's not simply just that the Roe v. Wade is overturned, but rather it was Dobbs versus uh, maybe Turner. I'm trying to remember, let me look this up really quick. Dobbs v. Jackson, excuse me, um, that overturned Roe v. Wade and set a new precedent sending the rights um, back to the states to decide if abortion was legal or not. And this was probably the biggest conservative win, I would say, in the last maybe decade. Um, and this conservative win kind of before it had some other conservative wins, and I'm going to talk about it. But it gives us a good lesson. I mean, the two things I want to talk about. Uh, first, what is the results of this? Like, what has this led to? And then the second is how can we use this win as a formula to get more wins as conservatives? The first one, uh, what has it done in the last year for us? According to Axios, I want to read just a few stats for you guys. 
Uh, over at Axios, they have a really fantastic map that you can kind of toggle between what the states looked like before Dobbs and after. But I'm just going to read for you uh, kind of what it gets broken down to. In the last year, at least 24 U.S. states in total are uh, were expected to ban abortions all the way or heavily restrict them. This is where they were actually banned. Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Nebraska, North Carolina, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Now, not all of these succeeded. These were um, determined by the state constitution. And so there's a lot of interpretation within each individual state, whether that's possible. So all of those uh, states that I just read off are not necessarily having a full ban of abortion right now. Um, to name just a few, so Utah, for instance, is where I live. Utah had a trigger law that took effect shortly after the Supreme Court released the ruling, but it's been blocked by a judge, and I believe it's still um, being reviewed. Uh, so Utah at this point just has an 18-week ban. Arizona and Florida have a 15-week ban in place. North Carolina has a 20-week ban. Uh, and then all the other states that I listed are either total bans or six-week bans. And then you have some other um, states such as Florida that have just recently started passing things and have kind of inched up on it and passed multiple things in a year rather than just going for the full ban. Um, and this is really important. It's important to show that when legislation is as important as activism is, as, poor, as important as social changes, legislation is really important as well because we saw that those 20 states were ready to go as soon as the law was passed. And so it's on us as conservatives to be really sure, not like it's not always about what our politicians believe. It's who can get the job done. And giving Donald Trump a little bit of credit right now, which is not something that I always do, I'll admit, giving him a little bit of credit, the big win for conservatives was that we elected a Republican in 2016. It happened to be Donald Trump. And Donald Trump was very zealous about getting three, uh, uh, three conservative Supreme Court justices in the Supreme Court, which made this ruling possible. So even though those judges were awesome and this is a huge conservative win, that victory really happened in 2016 and we just didn't know it. But you have to think to yourself, what would have happened if it had been Hillary Clinton put in 2016? They would have like a, a crazy supermajority in the Supreme Court. And so my point in saying this, and I know I brought this up so much on the show, we have to be really careful about elections even more than we previously thought. When you are electing a president of the United States, you are electing the judges, essentially. You're electing someone who's going to choose the judges. Yes, the Senate has some say in who is going to get put forward or not. But at some point, people have to be approved. And so at some point, the Senate lets it go. And so it's, and um, believe me, I know like Trump, going back to Kavanaugh, I mean, all of the people that Trump tried to put in, the Senate really tried to shut it down, but it still got done. And that's something that Trump deserves a lot of credit for. 
And so going forward in 2024, we need to think to ourselves, who has the best shot at getting elected? Because it's not just about the president. This is about not just, and not even just the Supreme Court. It's about the district courts and all of the other judges that the president of the United States is in charge of appointing, as well as going to governors. Um, the governors are the ones that are going to be appointing judges in your individual state. So it's really important that we consider uh, the Supreme Court and what the justices will do when considering who we are going to put in an executive position of power, whether that's on the state level or on the federal level. Um, when it comes to social issues with abortion specifically, um, well, rather, let me let me back up and say this. When it comes to social issues, conservatives are really winning. Recently, I mean, back in like 2012, we as conservatives, we steered clear of social issues. It was all about taxation, the economy, things like that, right? Maybe and foreign policy as well. Social issues were not a thing at this point. We were not talking about abortion all that much. There were some activists, but the politicians weren't talking about it. In 2016, Trump started this a lot. People started to galvanize behind social issues, especially with the advent of gender theory, or I guess rather the growth of gender theory. Gender theory is much older than 2016. And we are seeing a huge win for conservatives. As soon as we start, I mean, it's pretty crazy. It's like before it was liberals literally just beating the crap out of conservatives and then just taking it and they won. And people wonder, like, why are they winning? It's like, because you're not fighting back. As soon as conservatives got back up and started punching, then it started leveling the playing field. And in fact, conservatives are winning. We see this with gender theory. I brought this up on the podcast a few weeks ago, talked about how um, basically people were over time realizing that gender was not something that you could just choose, which is crazy to me. In the 90s, people were saying that gender was something you could choose. And today, less people are saying that. More people are saying gender is something that cannot just change. So we're seeing the conservatives are really winning on that issue. The one that they're not winning on is abortion. According to Pew Research, 61% of Americans think that abortion should be legal. And that's just a clear loss for conservatives. Like 61% is pretty high. And I've seen a lot of numbers on that. that. Those numbers are accurate. I hate to say it. I know a lot of people will say that's not true. I've seen a lot of numbers. I've seen a lot of polls. I've seen a lot of even just anecdotal evidence, and 61% is pretty dang accurate. Now, one caveat with that is that most people are in the 6 to 12 week range. So it's very radical to say that you can't abort up until um, birth. Not a lot of people are saying that. Most people are saying up till week 6, week 12. But for those of us who are conservative and believe in the science of it, even outside of religion, you may have religious beliefs that make you pro-life. I totally respect that. That is ultimately why I'm pro-life as well. But even just looking at the science, life begins at conception. And if we're trying to preserve life, then the 6-12 week thing just doesn't make sense. And so this is where I come to. Where are we going to go from here? The Dobbs decision has happened. We've seen incredible progress in this year for sure, but there are still those battleground states that have not made a lot of progress. If you didn't hear, Kansas put on their election whether or not they should ban abortion in their state and kansas voted to keep abortion as a right in their constitution kansas like that's a red state like republicans aren't worried about that state republicans don't like they don't they primary there they don't 
during the general election. They're not campaigning in Kansas. They know they got it. It went towards pro-abortion policies. And so that's a big L. That's a big loss for conservatives. And we need to think in those battleground states, how are we going to make up some ground? Science is very important, as well as religion. Generally speaking, those two are faith and science are two great ways to convince people of truth. Both have truth. And the question is, is we what story are we going to tell people? And the, the correct answer is we're going to tell people the story that works for them the best because both are true. So if you want to take the science aspect, tell them the science. Show them that almost everyone agrees that life begins at conception. If you believe that, you cannot justify abortion. You cannot justify abortion without justifying murder. If you can justify murder, then sure, you could abort someone at one week or two weeks old. But I mean, there's almost no one in America that's calling for murder at this point. So science is on your side. Religion, almost every major religion is so clear that abortion is wrong. The sanctity of life is at the heart of religion. So tell them the story that works. This is going to be a persuasive effort. We have to fight hard on this. We cannot let it go. We cannot be like Republicans in 2010 that just sat there and got the crap beat out of them. We need to stand up and punch as well and inspire those around us who are more independent thinkers to come on the pro-life side. One of my favorite stories of telling, kind of telling the right story to the right people is Lincoln. Now, Lincoln, a lot of people don't know this, but Lincoln had a lot of different motivations and a lot of different stories for telling people to get them galvanized and ready for the Civil War. Most people know the Civil War wasn't really about slavery. It was about states' rights, right? You've got the Confederacy, you've got the Union, uh, and they were wanting to ban slavery um, in the whole U.S., and the Confederacy was very upset because they wanted state rights. The story that Lincoln was telling people was very different. Lincoln went to white people in cities, and he told them, hey, we're going to go to war with the South. And I, because we believe in, in these principles, and they, he didn't say, and we're doing it because we're getting rid of slavery. What he was telling these white people in the city was, if I release the slaves, if I emancipate the slaves, they will fight in the Civil War. Would you rather have them fight in the Civil War or your son? He told that story to white people in the cities. Then he went to black people in the country. And he told them, hey, we're going to war with the South. Will you fight for us? We will emancipate you. He told different stories to both sides to get done what was right. And this is what we need to do with the abortion argument. Um, and it's my hope that we as conservatives will be outspoken about it. We cannot sit down and get punched like we did in 2010. With that, everyone, thank you so much for watching today's episode of The Josh Carr Show. Reminder, go to the link down below. Check out Gulag America as well as Ground News. Remember, Josh Carr 10 is going to get you 10% off at Gulag America. A great gift for the 4th of July. Anyone in your family, it is comfy clothes. It is great clothes. Uh, check it out. Thanks.